This is We Are Netflix, Netflix employees talking about work and life at Netflix. I don't want to sound like a sycophant because I'm on the We Are Netflix podcast, but genuinely this was one of the best studio experiences I've had, you know, in my 30, 40 years out in Hollywood. That's Bill Horberg talking about working on The Queen's Gambit. Now, watching people play chess may not sound enthralling. All the suspense in the game, if you can find some, is internal, quiet. In other words, hard to capture cinematically. But producer Bill Horberg has actually done it twice. First in the 1993 film Searching for Bobby Fischer, and now on Netflix with the hit series The Queen's Gambit. Both stories are about young chess prodigies, and both happen to be about a lot more than chess. The Queen's Gambit has been a huge hit for Netflix. In the series' first 28 days of release, 62 million households chose to watch it, making it Netflix's biggest scripted limited series to date. The show made top 10 in 92 different countries, ranking number one in 63 of them. And the series' culture impact went beyond people watching. After the series launched, search queries for chess doubled, and searches for how to play chess hit a nine-year peak. Chess sets have dramatically increased in sales, and the number of new players on chess.com has skyrocketed. I'm Lyle Troxell. Today on We Are Netflix, I speak with executive producer Bill Horberg, as well as Blair Fetter, director of original series at Netflix, all about how the series came to life, from the pages of Walter Tevis's novel, through a years-long adaptation process, to the screen. That novel, by the way, has now landed on the New York Times bestseller list, 37 years after its release. And it's where we started our conversation. Bill, when did you first read Walter Tevis's 1983 novel, The Queen's Gambit? Well, I was tipped off to the book by the wonderful author Michael Ondaatje, uh, writer of The English Patient. I met him through Anthony Minghella when we were making The Talented Mr. Ripley. And Ondaatje told me this was one of his favorite books and that it was something that he read every couple years to remember how to write. He was just so admirable of the craft of the storytelling of Walter Tevis. So he's no slouch. And, you know, with that kind of recommendation, I ran out to buy the book and I uh, just consumed it and loved it and started wondering why hasn't anybody, you know, made a movie out of this. And uh, lo and behold, when I went to track down the rights, it turned out they were held by an old friend of mine, a wonderful Scottish man who's a producer and a screenwriter named Alan Scott. And then Alan kind of became a partner in this project, yeah? Well, Alan let me become his partner. He had actually acquired the rights um, probably in the late 80s, early 90s. And he so he had been at it for about 10 years or more by the time I tracked him down. And um, I just said, I love this book and I'd love to help. And, you know, if there's anything I could do to join forces with you and see if we could get this over the hill, uh, I'd love to team up. And he was gracious and uh, we started working together. And at that time, we were really focused on making it as a feature film. Uh, Alan, in fact, had written a feature script, his own adaptation of the book. And we went to a number of different directors. You know, starting with Bernardo Bertolucci, 
uh, who Alan was in discussions with, you know, really way back in the day, uh, there were always a number of high-end filmmakers interested in this material. Uh, my friend Tom Tickfer was going to uh, direct it, and he and Alan and I worked on a draft of the script together, but then he went off to make Perfume. I brought it to Mark Forster, I brought it to Frank Oz, and eventually I brought it to Scott Frank, who I just had a strong hunch would really connect to this, probably because he wrote Little Man Tate back in the day, and I could tell that he was already kind of leaning into this territory of exploring, you know, child prodigies and, you know, genius characters, precocious characters. And Scott loved it, and he and I ran around trying to find a home for it. But it never quite added up. You know, it's not a really inexpensive story to tell because it moves all around America and then it moves to Europe and, you know, it takes place in seven or eight different cities. And when you're having this earlier conversation with Scott, Frank, you're also talking about it as a film, which makes it a secondary challenge. Yeah, we were focused on making it as a film, Scott and I, and this was in the the aughts, you know, probably 2005, six, seven in there. And, you know, there still was a market at that time uh, for independent films and, you know, financing and distribution, but the kind of cost value equation of this just never quite uh, lined up to crack the code. Bill, were you worried about producing this, that you'd be labeled as a, a chess movie uh, maker considering <laughs> your, your wonderful success with searching for Bobby Fisher? It's very funny to me that I kind of started my career and maybe now I'm in the twilight of my career, uh, bookended by these chess uh, stories. But I, I didn't really come to either of them through chess. I, I'm not a chess player myself. Uh, I really came through the books. I, I was given the book of Searching for Bobby Fischer by Scott Rudin and when I was at Paramount, we had a deal with Steve Zalian and we were looking for something for him to adapt for himself to direct. And I just loved that uh, memoir. It was so beautiful as a father-son story and really about parenting and about competition and the nature of uh, competition between kids. So it was in the chess world. And of course that was, you know, a, a big, big part of it, but the themes and the relationships are what really drew me to it. And I would say the same with Queen's Gambit. You know, it has a wonderful, exciting sports narrative. But what made me think that this could really be a more universal story and accessible to an audience beyond people who play chess or care about it in any way was really the character of Beth Harmon and her trauma and her coming of age and her tremendous emotional journey in this piece. And that just carried me along as a reader. And I thought, you know, if I'm having this level of experience, uh, I think an audience would really connect to her in the same way. So Alan Scott's in love with it. You're in love with it. Scott Frank's in love with it. It's 10 years ago. And then fast forward. Blair, will you tell the story from Netflix perspective? How'd you first hear about the pitch of Queen's Gambit as the title? It started with the limited series Godless, which was a feature film that Scott had written like 15 years before and had never quite found a home to get it made as a movie. Um, and he pitched that to us and as a as a limited series. And, and we really had one of the most, you know, uh, amazing experiences with him to sort of watch him expand that script to 
seven hours and go through the production. And we just had such a great time. We were so proud of that show and such an elevated sort of Western. But when we were sort of wrapping it up, we immediately started talking to Scott about like, what can we do next? And he shared the book uh, for the Queen's Gambit with me. So you just, um, you just liked working with Scott Frank so much. You just wanted to do another project with him. Well, yeah, I mean, it just felt like he did such a good job with Godless and in, in doing something that, you know, what it was, you know, bigger than a movie, but it wasn't an ongoing series. It was just this sort of special thing. And it wasn't that we were, oh my God, we have to do another limited series with Scott. It was just, he's just a, a dream partner, you know, very responsible and a joy to work with. So we nearly, we sort of pitched things to him. He pitched stuff to us and really just gravitated to the book in the same way that, that Bill spoke about in that it's a really easy read. It's so fun it really makes you feel good when it's all done. Um, I was a big fan of searching for Bobby Fisher. So I really like immediately saw how you can make chess feel like a dramatic, you know, sports movie to a certain extent. So it wasn't a traditional like pitch. Here's the show. It was just Scott saying, what do you think about this? And then we said, yeah, let's, let's do it. And then we sort of went from there. Okay. So the pitch is you, you, Scott, of course says, gotta read the book, start off. So you read the book, Blair. And he talks with you a bit about it. But then at some point, there's probably a more formal process. Like, what is this? What does the actual structure look like for you all to sit down? How big's the group? Before you've said yes, yes, you know, that stage, what does that look like, Blair? I mean, truly, it's a, it was a very informal process. I mean, that we, we said, like, hey, Scott, we would love to do this with you. How about we make a, a deal where you write the pilot so we can kind of see exactly what it is. And then we'll sort of go from there. Um, so it wasn't a typical straight to series endeavor like we do you know often um this was a little more like let's just see where it goes and he was he was game to do it and of course the first draft he wrote was exquisite and we were really aligned i think about what made it special so there were no surprises in that process and then you know then it it was i think it was somewhere in there you know he he introduced us to bill as his partner in this and you know i think we all kind of saw eye to eye about what needed to be adapted you know so much of the book takes place inside beth's head and and we knew that that was going to be a tricky thing to sort of visualize on the screen and uh but you know it was very clear from the beginning that he could do it it's one of those things where if you hear the log line like period chess show it doesn't sound very commercial but when you read the book and you hear you know sort of the excitement from scott and bill it's really easy to go like oh yeah this is a no-brainer and you look at their work as well for their past work and, and know that they can they can do it I was the studio executive for about five years. And what Blair is describing is that classic moment when somebody's made a hit movie for you and then you say, hey, we love you. What do you want to do next? And they pull out their, you know, orphan girl chess book and say, here it is, man. This is my next project. It's not exactly what you were kind of hoping they were going to walk in the door. And you say, well, why don't you write a pilot and we'll see. (laughs) No, I truly, truly was that, that I truly really uh, responded to the book and felt yeah. like it was it was a, a worthwhile endeavor. I know exactly what you're talking about, Bill, but um, it was really no, like. No, but I'm saying like yeah. as, a, as a here's the book, read it moment. But then when you read the book, it really kind of flips on its head and you go, oh, I get it. I get why these guys love it and they want to do it. The making of, of films is still kind of a mystery in a lot of sense to me and I'm sure a lot of people. You hire, like, so Bill's already attached to the this piece. They've worked together. Scott and Bill have worked together. They they know each other. They've talked about this piece. So he's involved. 
Blair, do you hire Scott to do it? Like, how does the relationship, the financial structure work? Is it corporation starts? What happens, Blair? At the, what's the next step? You're going to move forward. The next step was that, yeah, I think our deal with Scott was that we would read the script and then agree to greenlight the show. And, you know, I think we had a conversation about sort of the size and scope of it, you know, because at its core, it's a very intimate character drama, you know, but it takes place across the, the world. And so, you know, we, we all kind of agreed what the sort of size of the production could be that would make sense. Um, and Scott and Bill were great partners and they agreed. We all aligned, you know, pretty quickly about it. And then, you know, we hit the ground running, you know, Scott was writing all the scripts and Bill was, you know, hiring all the crew and sort of deciding where the locations were going to be. And that was, it was not easy, but relatively seamless. So before you launch it, you have to talk about how much it's going to cost, that it's going to be multiple location, that you've got to have all these period pieces. That's a big piece of green lighting it. Is that right, Blair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, depends on the the show and what you think the the audience is going to be. But I think this one, we knew it was, we believed in the creative, but we knew that there were probably some barriers for entry to some audiences. So that's why we, you know, wanted to make a, you know, a reasonable size bet on it. And and rather than say, yes, Scott, you can go to all these different countries. And we looked at it and we knew that like creatively, if we shot it in Berlin, we would be able to, you know, shoot all those different scenes in Europe and fake Kentucky. And so it all kind of made sense. And have some impressive buildings to shoot in that already have a lot of what we need. Yeah. 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 That that was not an obvious choice because there's not a single moment in the story that takes place in Berlin. Uh, but it was driven by two things. Um, you know, Scott had a number of his core team returning from Godless, his cinematographer, Stephen Meisler, the uh, amazing editor, Michelle Tesoro, his AD, uh, Aldrich Porter came back. But he was looking for a production designer and looking for somebody who, you know, had a particular skill set and uh, aesthetic vision, let's say, to do this show. It's 50s, 60s, Cold War era. As I said, it moves around a lot. So uh, it's a show where building the world of the show is very much a, a huge part of the experience of it. And he and I had a kind of kismet moment where we both realized that we were big Babylon Berlin fans. And we were kind of using that as a comp of, wow, what an elegant, classy period production, but it looks very lived in, you know, it doesn't look like one of those period shows that's kind of preserved in Amber. And, um, that was really important to him. And I said, well, the guy who designs that is an old friend of mine, uh, Uli Hanish. We had worked together about 20 years ago on a movie called Heaven. And I said, let me call him up and, you know, send him the book and see if he's available, interested. So that was the key thing. When those guys connected, it was like a Vulcan mind meld. You know, they just really uh, were riffing and very excited about uh, what they heard from each other about the potential. So we said, okay, well, let's go over to Berlin and meet Uli. And at that point we were thinking like, maybe we'll do 30% of this over here because clearly we had to go to Europe to shoot Moscow and, yeah. and Paris, you know, we weren't going to be able to cheat those anywhere else. But once we got there, it just became a revelation to us uh, because all of Berlin is basically built after world war two. So the architecture in every aspect really lent itself to this show. 
And there's so much of it that's interiors. So it's hotel rooms, it's high school gyms, it's uh, ballrooms, it's lobbies, and, you know, certain number of halls. And by the time we left Berlin, I think, you know, maybe uh, it was only about a five-day trip. Um, it seemed obvious to us that we could do our stage work there. Uh, and then we walked into this place and we said, this is Las Vegas in the 1960s here in the middle of Berlin. How is this possible? Um, and so the pieces just kept uh, tumbling that way. Um, Mexico City was probably the last thing. I was a skeptic. I was like, man, if you could shoot Mexico City in Berlin, you know, that's like next level. And you did. Um, yeah. But we did. And did did the costume designer Gabriella also was she already in Berlin? I mean, the design is so incredible that it it's worth mentioning many times. Yeah, well, that first trip, you know, was Uli and Uli's whole team. You know, we we had a great serendipitous thing where the third season of Babylon Berlin was finishing, and we kind of realized, well, that crew is all going to be available, so. You know, Uli's the captain, but he has, like, the best art director, the best prop man, the best set decorator. They were all, like, A-plus uh, people. So we kind of said, look, we want the whole team. We also met with probably the best line producer I've ever worked with, a German man named Marcus Logs, who has now got a second career because Scott cast him to play Lushenko, the uh, penultimate uh, Russian grandmaster that Beth defeats in the Moscow tournament. And through Marcus, we were introduced to Gabrielle Binder, um, who's also German. She had done a movie I just loved several years ago called The Lives of Others. It was an Oscar-winning foreign film. So we met her, and you know she joined the team. And we tried to go local as much as we could, uh, except for the people that had continuity with Scott. Blair, it sounds like Bill and Scott just pulled together these amazing people they wanted to work with. What was your job in this? Just to sit back and go, yes, they're doing great. Explain the process <laughs> well, of what you do. Yeah. So as a creative executive, you know, we're tasked with greenlighting the, the next shows that are going to be on Netflix and making sure they're as, as great as possible and being as supportive to the to the filmmakers as possible. So on this one, you know, because we had such a level talent at the top between Scott and Bill, it was, you know, obviously it's a it's a it's a real luxury and and privilege to work with them. So while all that was happening, Scott was adapting the book into to, you know, the seven episodes. Um, so we were, you know, reading those scripts with Scott and, you know, bringing up questions and, and we were really aligned with him about kind of the goals, uh, for the adaptation, how to shine a light on what's going on with, uh, with Beth without having to be inside of her head, like in the, in the novel. So my colleague, Laura Delanet, Hey, and I, as we were reading the scripts, we went to New York and sat with him and kind of went through the whole thing with him. We talked a lot about the different casting. You're sort of just holding the hands of the filmmakers along the way and helping them solve all the different challenges. So, you know, while they're on the ground talking about Berlin, you know, we're looking at all the lookbooks for all the different designers that they're they're trying to hire. And, and obviously on this one, it was a, it was a real privilege because all the, all the choices they wanted to make were, you know, Pretty good. Were, were there times, Blair, where you're like, ooh, this has to change? Or, you know, as a team at Netflix, we feel like something has to change here. Um, no, I mean, I'd say this one, we didn't really ever butt heads on any creative, you know, throughout the production. You know, I think when we were in post, 
there's always sort of a push and pull about specifically when you have a writer director who's really passionate about the material there's a little bit of push and pull about sort of the length of episodes and sort of the you know the pace and that's always sort of a discussion and and again Scott and Bill were real fun partners to have and post and and you know you kind of act as like sort of first the first audience and give them the sort of first set of feedback but i mean i would say of all the shows that i work on this one really we were in lockstep along the way so there was never a lot of hey scott you should change this or okay change that. okay that's your perspective bill was there a lot of pushback from netflix saying you got to do this got to do that <laughs> well since i'm on the podcast we are netflix um <laughs> No, I, I was going to say, I don't want to sound like a sycophant because I'm on the We Are Netflix podcast, but genuinely, this was one of the best studio experiences I've had, you know, in my 30, 40 years out in Hollywood. Uh, uh, from the top down, Cindy Holland, you know, had read the book and uh, kind of blessed moving a- ahead with this, and Peter Friedlander and Blair and Laura were, you know, great daily partners just through the, you know, rough and tumble of any production. And they were extremely supportive. They were very clear at the beginning, this is kind of the box we want to fit in. You know, we don't see this on the scale of a godless and we don't see, you know, the audience necessarily having the potential of that, uh, which we understood and, and agreed with. And, uh, you know, they gave us a kind of template uh, budget and then we, went through our process and we had to actualize everything, but, you know, we, we were able to hit the target and, you know, f- from putting the casting director on before we really had, you know, all the scripts, uh, it was just kind of one vote of confidence after another. Uh, our first choice was Anya Taylor-Joy. She read the book and loved it. Scott met with her in London, said, this is who I want to star in it. It was a very quick yes. And um, probably one of the most impressive things I've seen uh, from my point of view was the very quick support we had for the casting of Marielle Heller, because that was not an obvious choice by any means. It was really a leap of faith on behalf of the network, knowing that she's a brilliant filmmaker and she had been an actress, but she didn't have any uh, body of work to look at to really say, hey, yeah, she could do this. So it was just Scott and I saying, you know, we really love her and think she's got what it takes. Marielle Heller, of course, plays Alma Weederly, which is uh, uh, Beth's adopted mother. And you knew her as a, a filmmaker. Well, Scott had been her mentor at the Sundance Lab on her first film. So they had a very close relationship and he had already kind of shepherded her through that process. So he knew that she was an actress who had become a writer and now a director and was kind of a triple threat, you know, hyphen it. And she had had a very small role in one of his previous films that he had had to cut out, actually. So he he kind of owed her one. So why was her casting uh, unusual to you? Did you feel like the studio would have, in another situation, the studio would have stepped in and said, this is the actor we want to promote this for this project? Yeah, it's a very significant role in the piece. And I'm much more accustomed to the kind of pressure to cast a certain level of marquee name who the studio feels they can, you know, then use to hang the marketing on. Uh, But in this case, I think with Scott, the fact we already had Anya, we had Bill Camp, we had Thomas, you know, there were other pieces in place already 
that felt like this is a really strong ensemble. But nonetheless, I got to say, I, I can't think of any other studio that would have really uh, so quickly, you know, supported us creatively and said, you know, we're going to back your play here. Blair, is that a risk for you? Did you look at her and go, well, she doesn't have a long history. Were you questioning that decision? Uh, did you think about speaking up? You know, I think under other uh, situations, maybe. But again, it was sort of like what Bill said is like we had our cast that was looking remarkable and you know we had gone through the experience with scott before and you know it's so easy just to sort of trust their judgment you know because they're just pros so um didn't feel like uh something worth pushing back on and, and we're fans of hers anyway so it felt like yeah if he thinks she can do it she can do it you know yeah all right let's talk a little bit about chess bill you worked as we talked about earlier worked on searching for bobby fisher and at that time you worked with the chess expert for this piece as well Bruce Pandolfini. And tell me about bringing him in and when did you bring a chess expert in? Bruce Pandolfini was the very first call I made when we kind of knew that this had a home and was going to start being developed. And uh, I told Scott about my experience with Bruce, who, you know, he is the character in Searching for Bobby Fischer. Ben Kingsley is, play, is playing Bruce Pandolfini. <laughs> Uh, and so the book was really about him as the teacher of Fred Wakeskin's son. And I just said, it's not just that he's a, you know, chess master. He really has a unique ability to help the filmmaker understand the mechanics of the game and how to work with it and help them with the kind of visual language even. But he has a real gift to talking to the actors and just making them relaxed and comfortable and teaching them quickly to be able to look like they've been playing chess their whole life. And, you know, the volume of games in Queen's Gambit was exponentially greater than Searching for Bobby Fischer. I think uh, at the end we had developed like 300 complete chess games that were going on, you know, foreground and, and background. So uh, the first lunch we had actually in New York was with Alan Scott and Scott Frank and Bruce Pandolfini. And there was a wonderful moment because I'd known Bruce for 25 years, but I had no idea that he actually had been hired by, I think it was Random House, to be Walter Tevis's consultant when he was writing the book, <laughs> The Queen's Gambit. And not only that, he was the guy who suggested the title of The Queen's Gambit to Tevis. <laughs> So it was this great feeling like, oh, my God, we're like sitting here with the Queen's Gambit, you know, like <laughs> he's he's right at the table. Uh, and of course, Scott loved him. And, um, you know, Bruce started both working with the casting people in terms of trying to help them organize the search for uh, actors that could look convincing in some of these small parts. Uh, and then also reading the scripts and, you know, kind of giving Scott his um, authenticity, you know, smell test kind of pass. And then through Bruce, we actually got introduced to Gary Kasparov, who, of course, is maybe the greatest chess player of all time. And we met Gary in New York. And that was another thing where uh, there was just a kind of surprise dimension to it where, you know, we knew he'd have amazing technical advice around 
the chess in the show, but what we didn't quite expect was that his own personal biography and even his age kind of mirrors Beth Harmon to a certain degree. And so he was able to talk very personally about growing up in that era, being a child prodigy, the family dynamics, the school dynamics, the getting into the Soviet chess system, uh, the fact that those KGB agents are with Borgoff in Mexico came from Gary Kasparov. He just said, there's no way a guy like that would be able to travel around internationally without, you know, minders who are kind of shadowing him. So Scott, you know, was a kid in a candy store, you know, he had Bruce and Gary on speed dial uh, and we needed all the help we could get. You know, we were, we were kind of terrified about how to make the chess play, you know, to really make it something that people could watch and enjoy. And Scott's whole key was it had to have an emotional reason for every single game. There had to be some raison d'etre in Beth's own life that kept us interested in the context of the game. This brings to mind quite clearly that you've just spoken about a lot of men involved in chess and in an industry that's very male-dominant in some respects. But we're talking about a a female uh, protagonist the entire time. So where is the expert from the female protagonist who touches chess in the in the 60s and, and 50s. Yeah, I would say this. We were kind of listening to a lot of women, you know, in our immediate family about the characters and the drama. But on the technical chess side, because of my past history with Pandolfini and because that's a real job that somebody has to have a lot of experience in, you know, like being... Uh, the interface between filmmaking and uh, recreating chess games on camera. Um, so there are other, you know, amazing now uh, women chess players and champions, but it wasn't my impulse to reach out to them in the actual production of this because I needed a very specific skill set for that. The chess that piece job. of it. Yeah. I guess I'm yeah. just thinking about that we clearly see a very large challenge of a woman leading through that chess world. And I'm just curious where that, does that come from the book and you're able to lean on that? Um, Blair, if you want to step in at all, what, from your perspective, do you, did you read this book and go, Oh good, we've got a strong female lead on this piece. Is that an important aspect of the, of, of actually even producing it? Yeah. I mean, I think I responded to the, to the, you know, the, the full arc of the character and, and, and the under, I think the, the underdog quality to it, um, you know, in the kind of sports movie, you know, piece of it. And it felt like the character as a, as a woman, you know, going through much, so much trauma in her personal life and then, you know, being in this world where it, she's a fish out of water. Um, it was, it was all exciting to me, you know, and Scott, his previous series with us, Godless was really a feminist Western, you know? So I, I had the faith that he could tackle uh, you know, the sort of uh, young adult coming-of-age story. Blair, when did you know that this show was going to be as successful as it is? Well, you know, the scripts are really good, obviously, and the, the dailies and the, the design of it all was terrific. So we always felt like, okay, this show is very good. It's going to be great, you know, but it, I think the first glimpse I had was my colleagues, uh, Peter, Laura, and Cindy Holland were in New York for a premiere of another show, 
um, and Scott was cutting and he hadn't shared any of the cuts with us, but he let them go into the editing bay and I was stuck in LA. So I was jealous, but they all came out of that meeting and all pinged me separately to sort of say like, whoa, it's incredible. What do you mean he wasn't sharing the cuts with you? Is that a standard practice for us that we just let the creatives go for it? Well, he was in the process of doing his director's cuts. So like, like there's a, there's a, you know, he has to have, you know, typically, uh, you know, eat on an episodic series, the director has a, a few days to give to the producers and eventually makes its way to us. Uh, this one, because he directed the whole thing, he had a, a few months to, to work on his assembly before he was going to share it with us. But as a collaborator, you know, they were in New York. He said, why don't you come over? And he showed them, I think, just a handful of sequences uh, and it wasn't something he wasn't going to, you know, email it to us. Uh, and it was just, they were in New York and, you know, we're all friendly. And they all came out of that meeting. And like, I literally got a call from each one of them separately, like, whoa, it's really good. You know? And so I think that's the, that's like that first time you see it, you go like, oh, okay, it really does work. You know, we think it's there, you know, we, we you know, on the page, it's there, the performance of the dailies look good, but once you kind of see it cut together. Um, and then I'd say, you know, it just sort of felt good from that moment forward. Bill, what about for you? When did you know we had a, a hit? Probably uh, Monday, October 20... Release day. Uh, 6th. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we were very proud of the show, and we knew we had a, caught lightning in a bottle with Anya and her incredible performance and Marielle and, you know, the actress who played Jolene. And so it felt very strong. I just think... It was beyond any of our wildest imagination to contemplate that this chess drama was going to hit the zeitgeist and become this, you know, uh, wildfire and word of mouth phenomenon. And those are things you just can't predict. You know, when something like that happens, it's just the right character at the right moment. And somehow, you know, Beth Harmon was kind of the hero that we needed at the end of 2020. Uh, and this, you know, kind of existentially uh, tough year that we've all been living through. And then, you know, when we got that call from Netflix, it was not a weekend. You're talking about the producer's call, right? Yeah, it was a producer's call uh, the day before they announced that this was the most watched series, in, <laughs> limited series in Netflix history. That was just like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> I mean, it was an incredible feeling. And to see all these young girls signing up for chess clubs and chess set sales going through the roof. And, you know, it's become just uh, part of like pop culture vernacular. And I, I don't think anybody involved with this in their uh, wildest dreams could have seen that happening. Or we, we would have like bought stock in chess set manufacturer <laughs> companies. Blair, what was your what was the biggest surprise for you with regards to the success? I think for me, like you buy a show and you're as you're seeing it through, you have to kind of explain to a lot of people what you're working on and why you like it. And and I would always sort of pitch the show to people and talk about how like I think there's a lot of cool entry points to this show for a lot of different audiences. It's a really classy period drama for the people that like the crown. And I think it's a you know, it's got this really great young adult coming of age story and it's really like a sports movie and so i'd always sort of talk about oh there's all these different audiences that could totally love this show and i didn't in my head i didn't think that all of them would totally do that you were um, trying to convince other people right <laughs> yes 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 so like the sports movie thing was 
always a pie in the sky. And then, you know, I'm on this text chain with Bill and Scott and lo and behold, somebody was watching football and like on the, the broadcaster was using the Queen's Gambit as an analogy for, you know, a football game. This is like a few weeks ago. So it really feels like we did kind of get all those different audiences. What what do we share with our with our creative teams like this? Like the yeah, the producer call, you share some numbers. We we've shared publicly some numbers about this show, but what do we typically share with the people that make shows with us? Yeah, I mean, I think transparency is uh, you know important to us, and so you know the first thing is there's a daily top ten in in various uh, territories, countries of the top ten things that are on Netflix every day. With our filmmakers, we share the uh, like a ten day update and a twenty eight day update, and we give them a number of households that have started the show, so watch two minutes, and then a number of households that have completed the show, and so they can really get a sense of sort of how many people are you know jumping in, how many people are really loving it. Um, this one's a little unique because I think you know it performed so well that it made sense for us to share that. Um, so we gave these guys another update, sort of in the middle, um, so they knew that was happening. How'd that feel for you, Bill, finding out what the numbers were like? And did it feel like we were sharing enough with you about what was going on? Well, I have no point of comparison. You know, I've really mostly been in the feature space and it's all about, you know, pre-release awareness and tracking numbers and opening weekend. And, you know, usually by Saturday morning, like they've done an ultimate and they say, okay, this is, you know, (laughs) your film will end here. And they're, they're sadly always pretty close. Um, So this has been kind of a super fun learning curve for me, you know, really uh, getting a peek under the hood of the whole uh, marketing machine at Netflix was really interesting and and impressive. And um, I was really loving all the creative materials that they created. And and also it's so like not about an opening day for them that, uh, it was very counterintuitive for me. Oh, well, we're just going to drop the show on October 23rd and see what happens. They're like, what do you mean? Drop the That's show. That's not a Thursday. What are you talking oh. about? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I've really been hungry for every little uh, aspect of, of kind of watching how this works and uh, seeing how it goes down. And, um I'm curious now, of course, like, where are we at now? You know, like, you know, once you get into that, you know. Uh, uh, once you get the taste, uh, you want it more and more? Well, that whole thing of like the metrics of uh, household starts and completes. And, uh, it's just a different la- language. And the top tens in different regions and such. Yeah. 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 How it's working internationally. Why, why do Blair, why do we share this information with the creators? Like we, we've hired the team, you know, you, you, you made the decision to put the money down and actually pay for the show. Congratulations, by the way, Blair. And, uh, <laughs> and they produce it and they make this amazing piece. What, why do we feel like it's important to share this information about how well it's done? I mean, we're not doing a commission-y kind of thing. We don't like in traditional, it's like opening weekend ticket sales, some of the people are above the line and actually get a percentage of how much money the film's going to make. That's not the situation here. So why do we share it? Man, I just think we want the people that we want our partners, I think, to you know, know exactly how our consumers are engaging with the material that they've sweated for the last two years creating. It's just to me, it, it's, it's always been something that's well, before we started sharing more information, it was always kind of 
uh, I always struggled because I wanted to be able to tell them exactly all the number of people. But um, now that we do it, it's it's uh, it's really rewarding. So people know exactly how many people that they've uh, entertained. It sounds like you're all working together as a really collaborative team in some ways. So it seems like you would want to share information. That does make sense. Um, I'm glad we're doing it as well. And it's been so exciting to see from the outside at some level, uh, you know, how successful the show has been. And of course, my family's in love with it. So thank you, Bill, for making it and Blair for for greenlighting it. Blair, how much, like you had to do a prediction and, and Bill even mentioned earlier that the amount of money that potentially could have been spent on this was slightly reduced. And you always have to control budget and everything. Blair, how did you decide where that cap was? And obviously you could have spent a lot more on it as well because it's done so well for us. Um, so do, have you made some learnings on that with regards to budgeting, regards to uh, the stats that have emerged from it? Well, I mean, I think it's really like an art and a science and that you, you know, you can, it's really easy to to look at what you think a show is going to be. I mean, obviously you buy it because you sort of have a sense of what it is going to be and how big the audience is. But at the end of the day, it's really just sort of like intuition and judgment that is, I think, uh, driving those decisions. So yeah, like this one, uh, we knew that it couldn't be a teeny tiny show because it was going to be a global spanning saga. And a period piece as well. Yeah. yeah, it's just about finding that that healthy balance to really deliver on the spectacle of it, but also not make it uh, impossible for success. If you run into another show that has um, some kind of similarity to this, are you going to go and look at metrics to figure out if you're going to do it or not? Or is it still going to be kind of like, if I like it and I like the people and I think it's a good show? Like, how do you make that decision as, as someone who decides to say yes or no to shows? Well, I think it's really just about the kind of core of the the character journey at the heart. And that was something that I think, uh, you know, looking back, it was always undeniable along the way. Um, and the, the sort of period chess component of it was always the thing that I think threw people for a loop, but it was just a great story about a great character. And so I think you kind of go back to that core and then that's where you kind of make that judgment call about sort of how many people can connect with that character. And it's always going to be a bet. You know, that's what we do. And that's what's so fun and thrilling about it. So um, it will be hard. And it's always going to be an individual's decision too, which is kind of amazing to me. It's always amazed to me that you actually make a gut decision on whether to do something like this. Well, we don't do it alone. There's a few of us that all work together. So it's <laughs> there's a whole team here and we all talk about it. Yes, there's a, you know, ultimately somebody's making the call, but there's a lot of smart you, people. You only do it alone when it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> then they can point to you and say, great idea, Blair. <laughs> when it works, it's, <laughs> it's a crowded family. I mean, let me close by, let me first ask you, either of you wanted to say anything else about the, the project or working together? I want to say again, from my point of view, producing teamwork is something that I would uh, say really described my experience with Netflix. You know, uh, studios can get very balkanized and you can deal with a lot of internal politics at different places. And I really felt uh, none of that here. I mean, the post-production team and the production team and the marketing team and the publicity team and um, the people who were doing the international dubbing and all of it, it really felt like everybody was talking to everybody, that everybody was on the same page, that people were like rooting for each other and, uh, you know, wanting to help each other. And um, so that's, you know, fantastic. And as a filmmaker, it's what you want, you know, to really feel like, your compasses are all pointed in the same 
direction. And so then, you know, you can refine and fine tune and, you know, because uh, they weren't micromanaging us, then you're all ears when they do have notes, you know, and you're very open to hearing them. And so I felt like that was kind of endemic of the, the process, you know, that when they had something to say, it was always on point and not, you know, like sometimes with studios you go, what movie did you, are you calling the right producer? Or is this like a different <laughs> project that you're, you're referencing here? <laughs> what about for you, Blair? You know, I, this one was just a, just an overall, you know, delight to work on. Like, I, I, again, like we, we, we loved working with Scott. It was so much fun to get to know Bill on this and to see these two, you know, deliver exactly what they promised at the beginning. And it's just been really gratifying to sort of see the world embrace something that, you know, I've had the privilege to enjoy for the last couple of years, you know, in various stages. So it's, uh, it's very gratifying. Thank you both. Um, let's let's find out what you've been watching, Blair. What have you been watching lately? I recently watched the prom with my family, um, and they were actually really thrilled with it. I mean, like I didn't, my kids, I did not know were fans of musicals, but they were, you know, delighted by it. It was a it was a fun experience. Awesome. And uh, Bill, what have you watched lately? I really just only recently caught up with Unorthodox, mm-hmm. and I found that really compelling. I thought that actress was incredible. I just watched at my daughter's insistence a movie called Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always. And I thought that was very touching, great acting, people I'd never heard before. Um, the Octopus Dude, I really... Oh, I the Octopus Dude. Yeah, what is that called? Uh, octopus Teacher, is that yeah, what it's that's called? A, that's a great piece. Yeah, I mean, that was so beautiful to look at, but also really uh, moving. Um they just had that New York doc fest online. So that was super great because you could just access their entire lineup. And I watched the Frank Zappa doc, which I loved. Um, I watched this movie called The Dissident, which was pretty harrowing about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. And um, well, I just watched that Alex Gibney doc. That was also incredibly harrowing, <laughs> totally under control. It, it sounds uh, like the list you're making needs to be a public record so that other people can pick it up. Bill has seen every movie and, <laughs> and references all of them. And so as somebody who's watched a lot of movies, he makes me feel very um, uneducated when he references incredible movies from the 60s that I've never even heard of. Not, you know, not just not seen, not even heard of it. Well, Bill yeah. and Blair, we have come to the final of our, our time together. And I just want to say that I was so excited to talk with both of you because I so much enjoyed the show. What a pleasure. Thank you very much for sharing all this information about how the production actually cre- gets created. I, I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, Lyle. Thanks for having us. And we are Netflix. We are Netflix is hosted by Lyle Troxel. He's a senior software engineer at Netflix. You can keep up with We Are Netflix on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. To learn more about careers at Netflix, go to jobs.netflix.com.